over to John chapter 11 this morning. We're going to talk about resurrection. Now, if you're someone who has spent any amount of time in church at all, you've read the story. You've heard it. Um, You've read it in kids' books. You've probably heard about it in church at some point in your life. Before I ever believed it, I'd heard about the resurrection so many times that it became commonplace. But the reality is, resurrection should not be common. It's not common, actually. How many of you have met somebody that was dead and is now alive? With a showing of hands, an overwhelming zilch. Okay, so there you go. Now the reality is, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you know him. And he's risen from the dead. But we're going to read a story about a man that everybody knew in his community. His name was Lazarus. And um, Lazarus, in John chapter 11, is sick. He's so sick that he's at the point of death, and then he dies. And so in John chapter 11, it starts by saying, A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death for the glory of God, excuse me, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now take note of that verse. It says he loved them, so he does the following, which makes no sense. It says he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. He heard he was sick, and so he jumped up, and he stayed there. He didn't move. He said, Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is going to die, but it's not going to be a death. He had insight into what was going on. So he, knowing how the end of the matter would come to pass, he stayed there where he was for two more days. Now, then after he said said that to his disciples, He said, then let us go to Judea again. So in verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi or teacher, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going to go back to the place where they were going to kill you? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. So then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So they thought he was taking a nap. He was infirmed. He was in a hospital, but he was going to get better. But what he was saying is he's dead. And so verse 14, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. See, the disciples were just about as thick-headed as you you and I. He would say things to them. He would imply things to them. And they would, of course, in their ignorance, they would respond and go, okay, he's fine. Then why do we need to go? So then he goes, okay, he's dead. Just so you're clear on this, Lazarus was dead. This wasn't something where he revived him from a strong sickness. This was something where he was literally physically dead, not breathing, heart not beating. He wasn't in a coma. He was dead. And so Jesus says this to them, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, 
that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Hey, he's going back to this place where they were going to kill him. We're claiming to follow him. We better go. And so he goes, and we're going to die when we get there. So he, risked, he was recognizing that they were risking their lives. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So Martha responds like any good Torah-believing Jew would respond. He's just told her that you're, you're dead brother is going to rise from the dead. And she doesn't say, whoa, wait a minute, rise from the dead, that's impossible. What she says is, she would respond it out of her context. She responded as any common Jew would respond because they believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the resurrection. But he's going to correct her idea of this because they had a, a small belief, not a small belief, an incomplete belief in the resurrection. They understood it to mean that at the resurrection of all believers, they'll be taken to the Lord. But what he says here, in verse, or what she says, verse 21, is it says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if, sorry, no. He's just told her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And in verse 24, there it is. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, No, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her a question, do you believe this? They believed that if they believed and died, they would live. But he brings along the thing that says, he who believes in me, though he may die, he may live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So this is a whole new thought process. He says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, that you're the Messiah, the the Son of God who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. So fast forward down to verse 38, and Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. I fast forward to the point where they come to the tomb because it's one thing to say you're going to bring somebody back to life that's dead, but it means nothing unless you actually fulfill it, unless you actually do it. And so we get down here to verse 38, and Jesus, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was laying against it, much like the stone that we think of when we think of Jesus being in the tomb. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead for four days. So imagine you go to the funeral home, and there's a visitation or a wake. And the person's been in the casket for four days, and they're just going to open that thing up. There would be major protests. No, 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 no. Don't. The family especially would say, I don't want to remember them like whatever's inside there. 
Because after four days, it doesn't matter how many flowers you got. It doesn't matter how much embalming fluid or perfume. You cannot cover that. Just think about the, the, the meals you're going to have today. And if you throw them in the trash, the leftovers, you wait about four days and you open up that can because you didn't take it outside yet, what's going to happen? Your nose is going to be curled. It's going to be bad. It's going to be like death. And so in the same way, that's what's happening. He's been in the grave dead for four days. So if there was any doubt as to whether or not he was actually dead and not just in a coma, four days they sealed him up airtight. So he's gone. He's not there. And so Jesus tells them to do something that sounds ridiculous. Hey, take away the stone. Open it up. Let's see what's going on in there. And they do after protest. And Jesus, verse 40, said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, he prays in front of them not to show off. He prays in front of them because he wants to know that there's been communication between him and the Father that is basically he knows what's going to happen because his Father has shown him. And so he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Apparently, Jesus has been praying about this. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. He's going to do this, not to show off, not to prove his miraculous power, but he's trying to show these people, God the Father is the one that sent me. He's the author of life. He's, he gets to... He does it all. He holds it all together. And so he says, I pray this because I want them to know you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Which makes me think of a story of when Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples. And there they were. They were in the boat and this big storm comes in. All of a sudden, it just starts blowing. There's breakers. They're all panicking. These weathered fishermen are panicking because there's a storm which means this is bigger than just a regular storm they'd experienced before. And Jesus wakes up out of the front of the boat. They, they're like, hey, don't you care about us? And what does he do? Does he, does he throw a fit and panic too? No, he speaks to creation and tells it, hush, peace, be still. So I love this because the word that comes forth from the mouth of Jesus is powerful and it has authority. And so he speaks and says, Lazarus, come out. And as he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, he was wrapped in grave clothes. He stood up, he walks out, the door's already open for him, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And look at this. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So I want you to focus on that because he has grave clothes on. And we'll get to the reason I said that here in a little bit. So he is the resurrection and the life, is what he told them. So on the next slide, we'll go to John chapter 20 to read the more commonly read passage of the resurrection. I need my screen there. My button's not working. So in John chapter 20, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Notice any parallels? It's the same story. It's the same power. It's the same God. 
It's just a different circumstance. And then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. This makes me think of something I hear all the time. If they had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, why when they come to the tomb of Jesus himself are they going, who took his body? Because the whole time he's been telling them, I'm going to die, I have to suffer, I'm going to raise again. He's been telling them this all the way along. This isn't something that should have caught them by surprise. But all the time, we read Scripture and we go, why didn't they believe? I'm reading Exodus right now. God had showed his power to Pharaoh over and over. He plagued him, and then you know, Moses said, well, if, I'll pray for you that the plague will be taken away. When do you want it taken away? For some reason, Pharaoh's always like, tomorrow. Look, if I got a bunch of gnats or frogs or anything else that with the pl- blood in the Nile River, you know, locusts eating my crops, I'm not going, ah, wait till tomorrow. I'm going, uh, now would be great. I kind of need the food that's getting eaten by the locusts out there. Now would be great. I don't like buzzing anything in my ears, let alone in my house. And so, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> that's my brain. You're, just, you're seeing what's going on inside here. Yeah, the parallels. Thanks, Willie. So the parallel is here. We have this situation where they've seen the power of God to raise the dead, and they're quick to forget. We forget the most obvious, awesome things. We think, man, if I saw my brother raised from the dead, I'd be like, hey, I'm going to the tomb to see Jesus. He's probably walking out. But that's not how our minds work. We remember all the bad stuff, and we forget all the good stuff about God. And so here we are. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter, came to the tomb first. It's interesting, the guy riding John is bragging about how he beat Peter in a foot race, talking about the resurrection. Like, yeah, but look how fast I ran. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, and yet he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but instead folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also when he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. They had been told the scripture, they had heard it quoted, and yet they did not know it. And the idea of knowing there doesn't mean just a head knowledge, but they hadn't yet taken it in and made it part of their theology. Head knowledge about God will not get you anywhere. You have to embrace it and let it saturate into who you are and what you actually firmly hold to be true. And so these disciples that walk with Jesus didn't quite believe this yet. So in verse 10, then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped, stooped, stooped. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of, his, of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. They're still looking for the body. Interestingly enough, just a thought. If you were going to steal a body to disprove resurrection, 
wouldn't you take the grave clothes? Would you unwrap it? I mean, how many mob movies have you seen where they take the body, and I'm not trying to be gruesome, but where they take the body and they put it in the trunk of a car, they, they usually got it wrapped up because it's icky. Even evil, sinful, murderous people don't like to touch icky stuff. And so think about these soldiers. If they're going to steal the body and hide it, or, you know, in the conspiracy that everybody thought that the disciples stole the body to hide it, they wouldn't leave the grave clothes in the tomb. They'd take them with because they'd want to hide what they were doing. They're doing it in the, in the course of night, but if they're just carrying, like, they could see they're, they're carrying a body. They're up to no good. So just a devotional thought. So she's still looking for the body. Now, verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, I'm reading this story to my daughter this morning. And she was like, you know, trying to figure out why... All of a sudden, she understood why Mary recognized that it was Jesus. It was the same guy talking to her. But I would submit to you, it's probably because she had spent a lot of time with Jesus. She had been healed. She was a prostitute. She had seven demons she had cast out of her. And so she knew Jesus intimately. She knew his voice, just like the oceans and the waves, just like Lazarus when he came out of the tomb. They knew his voice. They knew his words. They knew how he said things. Think about it. My daughter gets up in the morning. I say her name a certain way because it's just, it's our thing. And Jesus, having spent a good amount of time with Mary, she knew how he said her name. She knew how her name was spoken by certain people. Hey, there's Mary, the prostitute. And then, hey, it's Mary, the one whom I love. Jesus looked at her that way. And no one else in her life, I guarantee, looked at her that way. So when he says Mary... She hears it and goes, whoa, wait a minute. There's only one person that says my name that way. It's Jesus. Jesus, what? I didn't know you were here, you know? And so she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And so, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, now I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so, without going any further, I, I want to point out the main point of me reading this is that this is written in verse 30. He says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. So if you think it's incredible that they didn't believe at the resurrection, and they had to be coerced and brought around, he did way more miracles than are even recorded in this book, and they still didn't believe. And so if you have struggling with that, 
recognize that he's able to do these things. And even when we see them, sometimes we still struggle with doubt and worry and fear. And so, but what he says here is that verse 31, these are written specifically in the book of John that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and there's an and here. Lots of people say that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ. They don't do anything about it. They just believe it. The demons, James says, believe and they tremble in fear. They actually would cast themselves down and prostrate themselves before the Lord. When Jesus was walking, the demon-possessed people would cast themselves to the ground and say, Jesus, what are you doing here? They, they would tremble in fear, yet they would not respond in faith. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that believing, look at this, you, don't think about the group, don't think about the body of Christ, that you, as an individual, may have life in his name. So what does that life look like? Because the reality is, I think a lot of people believe in the life of Jesus to get them life in heaven eternally. And I don't think that that's a wrong belief. That it, eternal life is something that Jesus gave and promised, but it started with repentance and forgiveness of sin so that we could be reconciled or brought back into fellowship with God. But Jesus, just, he didn't die just so that we could go to heaven. He really didn't. He died so that we could start our eternal life now, so that we could experience abundant, joy-filled, hard, yes, but overcoming faith in life now. When you get to heaven, there's nobody that you need to tell about the good news because they already know it. But here, in this world, in the dark world that we live in, there are people surrounding you that do not know Jesus, and they will perish in eternity without God in hell without his forgiveness. It's what we deserve without Christ, outside of his covering, outside of his blood. And so for us as believers, sorry about the tiny font. This looked really big on my computer screen, I promise. I say that every time and it always surprises me, but you know, I need to remember what I'm going to say. So if you can't read it, I'm sorry. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, he's been talking about, Paul writing here, is talking about what we do, and he says, um, in verse 16, he says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding to festival or new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to Jesus, the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, growths, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, look at this. Verse 20, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself again to regulations? Salvation can be found nowhere else but in Christ. And salvation starts first with death, recognizing that my will is not God's will and that I need to 
If anyone would follow after me, Jesus said, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, which is a murder instrument, let God kill you, be killed with Christ so that he can raise you new. So therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? And those regulations come from lots of people that are legalistic. They say that faith is do not touch, don't taste, don't handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men, traditions. He says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body. We'd like to try to prove ourselves to God. I'm going to give up this or I'm going to do that and I'm going to prove my righteousness to God. And, and what he says is that, that but our, these things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You can beat yourself. You can scourge yourself. You can deny yourself. You can diet. You can do whatever to try to prove yourself worthy to God. And don't laugh because people do it. We try to keep certain fast days, and we try to, and those things aren't bad. We try to say, well, I've been at church every Sunday, or I've been at church every fourth Sunday, or whatever your religion might be. And yet what he says here is then that those things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh or the lust of the flesh. They can't conquer sin. They can't give you power over sin. As a matter of fact, they'll make you more aggravated because you realize how weak you truly are. But in chapter 3, verse 1, he turns the corner and he says, If then you were raised with Christ, having been dying to yourself, having been buried with Christ, then you were raised with Christ. He says, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he says, if you died with Christ, and if you've been raised with Christ, this isn't something we get to experience like Lazarus. Lazarus knew he was dead. Everybody told him. They all looked at him and said, whoa, what are you doing here? You died. You were sick. Christ raised me from the dead. But really, we're no different. Because even though Lazarus came out of the tomb with grave clothes on and everybody knew the news that he had died, bad news travels quick, doesn't it? They also recognized that he was different when they took off the grave clothes. Because grave clothes stink. They stinketh. You know, he may have not smelled anymore, but I guarantee whatever was wrapped around his body did. And maybe it didn't. Maybe it was like uh, the, the three that were cast into the fiery furnace, Daniel, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they came out, one of the things that was amazing is they came out of this furnace, having been in this inferno, their, their clothes weren't touched. There was no hair seared, which is amazing to me because I can't grill without searing the hair on my body. You know, the grease gets in there and it flares up and it sears the hair. But they didn't even smell like smoke. It's bonfire season. If I get near, within 100 feet of a bonfire, my wife's like, you stink. Bringing that smoky smell in the house, right? But, so I don't know if maybe his clothes didn't smell like death. Who knows? But he says, if you've been raised with Christ... Then he says in verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Your members, that word there means the sinful things that still lurk within you. I call them your grave clothes. The, the habits, the sinful practices, 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the things that separate you from God. And he lists them in case there's any misunderstanding about what he means. He lists them. Fornication, which is sex of any kind outside of a biblical marriage. Uncleanness, passion, evil desire, wanting something God doesn't have for you. Covetousness, wanting what your neighbor has, which is idolatry, putting those things in place of God. Because of these things, he says, the wrath of God is a coming upon the sons of disobedience. But look at what he says here. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. That's all past tense. So he's writing to this Colossian church. He says, put to death these things that you used to walk in. That means that at salvation, there isn't this magic wand that says, okay, you're good. Now just live like you always did. He didn't save us so that we could stay in sin. He saved us so we could be free from sin. And so he says, put to death those things in your life that are still ailing you, that are still dragging you down. I guarantee if Lazarus came out of the grave and he did have stinketh clothes on and he tried to just kind of live like nothing ever happened, he would be a stench everywhere he went. And let me tell you, a person that proclaims to follow Christ and is still living in sin everywhere they go, but still proclaims the name of Christ, is a stench. He's a stench to believers who are like, don't tell people you follow Jesus. And he's a stench to non-believers who go, see, I told you Christians are no different than the rest of the world. It's, it's a blemish on the spotless record of Christ. Now, he's okay with that mess. And he knows that we're all works in progress. But he says, if you've been raised with Christ, stop walking in your grave clothes. Stop carrying that stink around. What's the other thing is about grave clothes, um, if they do still stinketh, I know I'm going on presumption here, uh, what do grave clothes carry? They carry disease. Lazarus died because he was sick. If you've ever been around anything that's dead, look at the roadkill on the road. You tell people not to touch it because it's got disease. It's got bacteria growing on it. And it affects those who touch it or get near it. Christians, as believers, if we walk in the church covered in our grave clothes and our disease just simply because we won't put it away and get rid of it, we're going to disease each other. And sin brings forth more death. Now, we need to be grace-filled with people that aren't there yet. We need to be full of grace, recognizing that we're not all in the same spot. But at the same time, if God convicts you that there's sin in your life, there's things that you need to put away, just do it. Just be simply obedient. I guarantee that the, the thought of, well, but I might miss this or that, it's going to go away when you're set free from it. You ever go hiking and carry a backpack and put 20 pounds of rocks in it? No, nobody does that. You know why? Because it's not as fun. You're not as free to climb on the rocks. You're not as free to hike un unencumbered. You want to lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. If you know you have a poisonous snake, you don't let it live in your house. It's, it would be silliness. May, some people do. <laughs> I was babysit about halfway between here and Farmington. I grew up uh, at the bottom of Stono Mountain, and there was this family that babysat us. I don't know how old I was, but they always had blue racers, uh, black snakes, and the occasional copperhead. Now, I do not understand why they had a copperhead, but they thought it was cool, and I, they thought they could handle it. Now, they could handle it, but the problem is 
Is that thing that you're cuddling with, let climb around on you? It's going to bite you. And it's one thing to have a snake. That snake's going to bite you too. I don't like snakes. <laughs> Small bias, okay? It's a bad example. But don't cuddle with poisonous snakes. That's what sin is. And if you've been raised with Christ, God's given you power over sin. He's given you the ability, Christian, to say no. Before Christ, you don't have power to say no to sin. In Christ, all the power you want to say no to sin, to say no to the flesh, to say no to your, yourself that will destroy you. Um, so put off the old, put on the new. He doesn't say just what to put off. He says what to put on. Because the Christian life is not about the don'ts. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do that. The Christian life is what you get to do. And so he goes on in verse 8 and says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, malice, wrath, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't be liars. Don't lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. There's no ethnic division. There's no I'm not from there division. There's no Fiji division. There's no Arcadia. There's no Pilot Knob. Wherever you're from, whatever family you came from, there's no division. In Christ, we have all been humbled by the fact that God calls us sinners, died to pay for our sins, has made us new creations in Christ, and now we have to walk in that newness. So, put on the new character of Christ. Notice that he doesn't say, go and do miracles. Although he says that miracles will follow those who obey Christ. But he says, uh, start, uh, he doesn't say start a ministry. He doesn't say go straight into foreign missions. What he says is to put on the character of Christ. And in verse 12 through 8, 17, he gives us that. So the reality is, you died, right? He says, if you died, then if you were raised. You died, Christ did not. So let him live in you. That's what he's saying. So my advice, put on Christ and see where God takes you. And so in verse 12 through 17, what does it look like to put on Christ? Therefore, as the elect or the chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience or long-suffering. He says, bear with one another, forgive one another. If someone's got a complaint against another, forgive them. Don't hold a grudge. He says, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, peace be with you. Peace be in you. You're peacemakers now. You have peace with God, so now you can go make peace with others. Your relationships should be reconciled, all of them. Some are easier than others. And also, you were called in one body, so be thankful. And then he says this in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. 
Not only should the word be dwelling in you and guiding, or what the word is there, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, means to umpire. What's an umpire do? They make the call. In the heat of the moment, they make the call. Whether or not it's a good call, sometimes we get aggravated. But he says, let the word of God dwell in you richly and make your calls, because those are his calls to make now. And if you'll do that, he says, uh, he says, then let the word of Christ overflow from you in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another, teaching one another, singing to one another. Some of you should sing less than others. Some of you should sing more than others. Stop hiding. But singing with a melody from your heart of what God's done in you. Embrace it. Be excited about it. When you get together with your families today, you're going to do it. It's what we do, right? Let there be a melody in your heart. All this stuff that you've got, the baggage you're carrying around with your family members, let it go. Take a word from Elsa. <laughs> it's a word from Jesus, okay? Her, her let it go was a little different. I think it was a little bitter, let it go. But Jesus says, hey, you've been forgiven in Christ. Forget Whatever it is, let it go. You're only hurting yourself. They don't even care that you're bitter at them. You're carrying that, and it's cancer to you. And if you could get rid of cancer, if most people could get rid of cancer, they'd do it, right? With just a, a wave of a wand. So we've been given the Holy Spirit, and he says, you can let it go. You can give it to me. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So a little application. Are you raised with Christ? He says, if. If you then were raised with Christ. Fact one. Jesus has power to make the dead alive. John chapter 11. He physically made a dead man alive again. Now that's a bummer for Lazarus because he was with the Lord. He's got to come back here. Then he had to die again, but to live forever. But fact two, Jesus himself is not dead. He's alive. So for the believer, if you then were raised with Christ are you still walking around in your grave clothes? Jesus took his off, right? Jesus took his own grave clothes off. But did you notice that the people surrounding Lazarus were told to help him take his off? The body of Christ is, but we're supposed to help each other take the stinky off. We're supposed to help each other grow in grace. We're supposed to help each other step out of those sinful habits and lifestyles. Don't be so sensitive. We're all in the same playing field. We're all sinners that fall short of the glory of God. We don't want to let each other see each other's brokenness, but if we don't, they can't help us take it off. So be broken, be okay with it, but be discontent so that people can help you take it off. Um, So what are the grave clothes? Unconfessed sin, sinful habits, sinful appetites still lurking within you. Paul says, kill them and take them off. Why? Because grave clothes stink and they carry disease. It's plain and simple. There's probably other reasons. How? We've been given the same power Jesus had to say no to sin and the flesh and yes to the Spirit. Surrendered to the conviction of the Spirit and recognize that the Spirit is given to you to help you. To help you. To convict you, yes, but to show you you need help and then to help you. And then say yes to the Spirit and no to the flesh. The one you feed more, if you feed the Spirit all the time, then it's going to be stronger than your flesh. If you feed your flesh all the time, don't be surprised when it rises up and conquers you and kills you. 
So say yes to the Spirit, no to the flesh. And lean on and learn from each other. We've been given to each other to help the sanctification process, like those surrounding Lazarus. But the question becomes, if... Now remember, Jesus has the power to make the dead alive, and he himself is not dead, he is alive. So, if then you were raised with Christ, my question is, have you been raised with Christ? Have you been raised? I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what shame you carry. If you can't forgive yourself, that's a new thing. I just can't forgive myself. You don't get to. You didn't sin against yourself. You sinned against God. He can forgive you. He's willing. He died to show it. And God is able to resurrect you and make you a new creation. He is able. You are not. Say it with me. He is able. I am not. I want you to remember that. Disney lied. You can't make yourself better. Christ came and died to make you not better, but alive. So think about it. You haven't been in the grave for four days, so no matter what it is you walked in with today, you weren't dead for four days, I guarantee it. Maybe you were. I don't know. Maybe you were in a coma for four days. Maybe you were in a coma for a long time. But the reality is, outside of Christ, you've been, you've been dead your whole life. Dead in our sins and trespasses. So the question becomes, are you willing to die to yourself so he can raise you new? John chapter 3, verse 16 does say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But then it also says that whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He's not saying whoever will. Like, well, whoever's coming over will. He's saying whosoever is willing. We have to be willing. God doesn't force himself on us. He just doesn't. But he does care about us. He demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still at war with him, while we were still sinning against him, while we were in the very act of rebellion against his love, that's when he died for you. Christians, he died for you before you responded. Non-believers, he died for you while you were sinning. You're still just as worthy as you were before. I still think that God's getting a bad deal on my salvation. I traded in what I had to give and what I still have to give for Christ the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He got the raw end of the deal. But I'm grateful. John chapter 11, verse 25 through 26. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a promise. So, Father, we thank you for that promise. I still don't get why you love me. But I'm not going to spend my whole life questioning whether or not it's possible. I'm just going to choose to believe. And so, Father, I pray for us as believers, Lord, help us to lay aside the sin and the weight and the traps that we just continue to keep in our lives. If we're tempted by what we see on the internet, help us to lay it down and say no. If we're... Uh, given anger and wrath, help us to stop. Lord, we can't do it alone. If, if we've held bitter judgment and resentment and unforgiveness, the word clearly says that if, as we've been forgiven, so we must also forgive others. 
whatever are the grave clothes that we're carrying, Lord, that are keeping us diseased and weighed down, Lord, would you take them off? Would you send people into our lives to take off the grave clothes? And if there's anybody here this morning that has not been raised with Christ, has not died with Christ, and has not been raised with Christ, Lord, I pray, Father, show them how much you love them. Reveal to them your power to save to the uttermost, those from the guttermost. I am living proof of that fact. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your power, not only to save, not only to forgive, but to make my life new. And I know that there are so many in here that can test to the same thing. Would you make that happen for each one in here that doesn't know you? Give them the willingness to respond to your call to be saved, to be forgiven, to be made new. And Lord, we'll give you the praise for it. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.